Alright, if you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Mark, chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, if you don't have one, there are some on the back table there. I'd be happy to let you borrow one or give you one if you need it. Uh, but Mark chapter 14, which is where our reading was, and we will again be in verses 32 through 42 uh, for the last time. So last week we traveled from Gethsemane, then to the cross on Good Friday, and then to the empty tomb on Resurrection Sunday. But this morning we're going to go back again into the Garden of Gethsemane one last time, um, in this series at least. Um, but I, I hope that we would continue to go there and learn of Jesus how to pray and remember what he has done to secure our salvation. Um, in this sort of ever-expanding study in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we've sought to learn from Jesus how to pray, we've, we've considered many things. We've talked at first about our, our approach to prayer, maybe our, our preparation for prayer, and then we started thinking about the words that we use in prayer as we considered uh, the words of Christ here in, in, in Mark 14, um, learning how we speak to him, what are the, the substance of our prayer. Um, on Good Friday, we thought too, we thought too about how does uh, the Father answer the Son's request that we find here, um, and we're encouraged by that. The way that the Father gave um, not only Christ the endurance to face the trial, but also the joy to see the purpose of the trial that he was that he was in. Um, and today we're going to look at how Jesus speaks to James and to John, and especially to Peter who he had brought with him to the garden to watch and to pray with him. So let's read Mark 14, verses 32 through 42 once more, and note in particular Jesus' interaction with these three disciples that occurs about halfway through. So Mark 14, beginning in verse 32. And they, this is the eleven disciples minus Judas and Jesus, went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So let me just remind you, summarize what's happening here. We see in the text that Jesus enters into the Garden of Gethsemane with the eleven disciples after Judas had gone away. Um, and as they are sort of at the entrance of the Garden, he asks eight of them to remain back, and he takes with him Peter and James and, and John and, and heads into the garden and then with much passion he says to them that, that he wants them to watch and pray with him because his, his soul is so sorrowful 
even to the point of death. And as he asked them to, to watch and pray with him, Jesus then himself goes a little bit further. Luke says he goes about a stone's throw away. Um, what a great description. I love that. And there he, he falls down and prays to the Father. And then after that, or in the midst of that even, there's this cycle of, of three that's happening, wherein Jesus asks the three to watch and to pray. He separates and goes and prays by him by himself for some time, for what we would think is at least an hour because of the words that, that he uses. And then he returns and finds these three disciples sleeping. So this happens three times. He he asks them to pray, goes and prays in solitude, returns and finds them sleeping. And it's these instances and, and the words of Christ that I want us to, to think on and to meditate on this morning and to see this truth. In the fight of faith, prayer is a vital weapon. In the fight of faith, prayer is a vital weapon. That, that's our, our big thought for this morning, and we'll kind of swim around in that. So as God's children, we are, we are seeking to walk by faith. That, that's what we're doing. We are in this, this fight of faith, this walk of faith. We're trying to, to live in the reality of who God is and who He has called us to be. And as, as we walk, as we fight in faith, prayer is a vital weapon. It's a vital tool to us in our walk and in being faithful in this walk. Ephesians 6, Paul famously tells us that, our, that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood but we're wrestling against, against invisible forces of evil. It's a spiritual battle. And in describing the armor of God that we are to put on, he talks then about the sword of the Spirit. And then he says in Ephesians 6.18 that we should be praying at all times in the Spirit. Prayer is in this, this picture of the armor of God, and prayer is seen as a key piece in the armor of God. It's a, it's a weapon against the world, the flesh, and the devil in our fight to believe what is true. In the fight of faith, prayer is a vital weapon that we have. We, we see here in our, our passage that Peter, when he's offered this weapon, he falls asleep. He had just been told that he was going to not deny Jesus three times, if you look at the context. And now he's given instruction to watch and pray so that he will not enter into temptation, probably at least in part speaking about this temptation to deny Jesus. But he fails to do that. And instead, after the opportunity to, to wrestle in prayer, to use the weapon of prayer, in the midst of Jesus being arrested, what does Peter do? He pulls out a sword, and he chops off someone's ear. And Jesus rebukes him, and he makes it clear that the battle is not one that we're fighting with swords. I think as we look at this, as we think about the context, it's as if Peter is, is too late to the fight, and he's using the wrong weapon. He waited too long. And he's not using what he was supposed to do. The real war began when they entered into the garden. And the right weapon was not a sword, but it was it was prayer. It was for Peter to watch and to pray. I don't think, not, what I'm saying is not that if Peter would have prayed, then, then Jesus would have been saved from his hour of death. But that's, that's not the point. That if Peter would have watched and prayed, that we could have been, that Jesus would not have died. I, I think though that if, it's not out of the question to say that if Peter would have watched and prayed, that it would have helped Peter to see the deeper reality of what was going on. It would have given him the strength in that moment to, to stand with Jesus, to not deny Christ. I think that's what Jesus is telling him. Watch and pray so that you don't enter into this coming temptation. And if Peter would have watched and prayed, then he may not have. Like Peter, we're walking through life as, 
as God's children. We're trying to live by faith. We're trying to live in the deeper truth of what is really real. To walk by faith is to live in a way that sees past the lies of this world, to see how fleeting things are, to recognize that the pleasures of sin are just for a season, Um, to live in the presence of God, to not be fully absorbed with our own presence, but with His presence. And prayer is a weapon against all of these lies that surround us. It's a tool of faith. It takes us from what we think is real and allows us to enter into the presence of God where we see what true reality is. What I'm encouraged by this, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that if if you're tired of fighting temptation and fighting trial and losing, of swinging earthly swords and chopping off people's ears but never really accomplishing anything, I, I think that Jesus is telling us here, watch and pray. This is this is where we fight. The fight of faith is is fought with spiritual weapons, and a key and vital weapon is prayer. Too often we are like the disciples. We fall asleep in the garden of prayer. And when we wake up, we don't know how to answer Jesus. I, I love that. They, Peter, well, I don't love it, but I relate to it, I guess I should say. Um, when Jesus rebukes them, they, he confronts them about their prayerlessness, uh, wakes them up, and they are rightly convicted, but they don't know what to say. They had failed to watch and pray with him. They had failed to support him, but also their weakness in this moment leads to weakness later on, and so they are, they are silent in their response to Jesus' questions. Whenever you talk about prayer, whenever I talk about prayer, whenever I preach on prayer, I am convicted by my prayerlessness. And we can make all the excuses that we like, but they're not really worth much, you know. I mean, I can talk about how uh, that, that prayer is a fight, and I can tell you I'm, I'm far from perfect in practicing it. And But I, I think it would be foolish for me to say, you know what, prayer is hard, it's, it's okay, and, you know, don't be too hard on yourself. I, I don't think we should wallow in the fact that we don't pray as we should. Um, that would that could be just pride that says, I know I can do better. Uh, but I, th- I don't think we should accept prayerlessness as a normal part of our lives. If we are God's people, we should be people of prayer. Uh, we should be convicted. We should seek to fight temptation with the re- weapon of prayer. We shouldn't be satisfied with weakness in prayer. In a culture that always wants to, to say, no, you're okay, I think it's okay to pause and say, no, it's wrong if we as God's people are not praying the way that we should. We should be convicted if we are not pray- if we are not taking up this, this weapon of prayer. So, Prayer is a vital weapon. I want to think about about the two key sentences of Jesus to the disciples as we seek to instill this more into our lives. And they would be um, there in verse 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. That's the first sentence. Second sentence, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we're just going to think about those two things as we think about prayer as as a vital weapon. And I hope these will spur us on to watch and pray and to use this tool, this this weapon effectively in the fight of faith. So the first sentence there, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The statement of Jesus, it reminds us of the Lord's Prayer. Do you remember what he says in the Lord's Prayer? He says, when you pray, you're to say, lead us not into into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So there is a, a command here to watch and pray, and Jesus says, if you will watch and pray, the result will be, in watching and praying, that you will not enter into temptation. You will be 
delivered from evil, as he says in the Lord's Prayer. And, and this is a phrase that, that the New Testament writers pick up on. We saw how Paul uh, loves that phrase that when Jesus cries out, Abba, Father, and he uses that over and over again. The New Testament writers adopt this idea of, of watching and praying, of being vigilant and calling out for help. So 1 Corinthians 16.13, Paul writes this, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Colossians 4.2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.6 And then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. I think a lot of that is drawing from Jesus' words here. Peter himself reminds himself of the words that he heard from Jesus in the garden. 1 Peter 5.8 He ties it directly to the temptations of the devil himself. This is what he writes. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. I just wonder if Peter's not, in writing those words, remembering how he was not sober-minded, how he was not watchful, and how the devil did draw him into temptation in that moment. All of these passages carry with them this flavor of, of battle, of and, and that and that watching is being sober-minded. It's being fully aware aware of what's going on around us. And that prayer, in prayer, we are we are fighting to win this battle of of being aware of what's happening and seeking God's help. We need to be awake and alert in prayer if we're going to stand firm in the fight. I think the question then that we would ask is, how does prayer help us resist temptation? So that's that's what I want to think about and, and offer two options. How does prayer help us to resist temptation? Jesus tells us that if we would watch and pray, we will not enter into temptation. But but how do those two things, watching and praying, keep us from entering into temptation? How does that deliver us from evil? And I want to give you two ways. The first is by providing supernatural strength. How does prayer help us resist temptation? By providing supernatural strength. This is what happens with Jesus. He is given the strength to endure. Prayer itself is not our help. But the power of God that is accessed through prayer is. We've said before that, that prayer is an act of faith. Listen to these words of John Stott. He says, Faith has absolutely no value in itself. Its value lies solely in its object. Faith is the eye that looks to Christ, the hand that lays hold of him, the mouth that drinks the water of life. So if that's what faith is, then so too prayer is not valuable on its own, but in the fact that we are asking help from God himself, and he is the one that is going to help us. Spurgeon has said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the omnipotent arm of God, the all-powerful arm of God. I love that. Prayer is the means of accessing the limitless power of the Father on our behalf. And if we would pray, then no temptation can stand before God's power. No trial can triumph over us if we're filled with the, the strength of God. And we gain power and strength through prayer. So how does hair, how does hair, how does prayer help us in temptation? How does prayer help us in temptation by providing supernatural strength? That's the first thing. Secondly, by reminding us of what is really real. By reminding us of what is really real. 
I don't know if that's proper grammar or not, really real, but I kind of like it. It's easy in life to forget what is true and what is real. So maybe you've had this experience. You go into a movie theater on a summer day, the sun's shining, and you enter into the fully air-conditioned space. Um, and then you, you go into a darkened room, and you enter an entirely different world. The, 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 move of the, the world of this, this movie that you're watching. And after two, sometimes three hours, depending on you know how long the movie is or how early you got there, you leave the theater and you head to those doors. You know the doors that don't have any windows. You know you can come in the nice lobby, but then you exit out that weird hallway and you open up those doors and suddenly you realize it's dark and it's raining or something. Is is everything is transformed? You went in and it was a beautiful day, and you come out and it's it's now everything has transformed and suddenly. Reality comes crashing in on you. Just thought of that strange YouTube clip where that guy says, "Reality hits you hard, bro." I don't know if anyone's seen that, but reality settles in, and especially as you're running to your car through the rain, you were in one place, and then suddenly you realize what's really real. You had gone into this dream world, and now reality is back. Now, track with me on that for a minute. I was thinking about the nature of temptation and sin, especially in this context. And you think about Peter and his denial of Jesus. And it occurs to me that in some sense, there's a, there's, a, there's a sense in which all sin is a denying of Jesus. So, so to be drawn into sin is to not have faith in who Jesus is or in what he says. When we sin, we are living temporarily as if God does not exist and as if we don't know who he is. We are denying him. We live in this false reality that there is no God and that we are not his children. We're in this dream world. Prayer then is sort of this wake-up call in the midst of sin, as well as a preparation before entering into temptation and sin. It's like, and I'm not preaching against going to movies, obviously, because I've been to them, but but it's, it's like in the darkness of some sort of world where Jesus doesn't exist, we open up the doors and we see reality and the doors that we're opening, we open them through prayer. That that's how we let the light come into us. So prayer is an act of reminding us of what is really real. As we pray, we are acknowledging who God is. We're affirming His existence and power. We are doing the opposite of denying Him. We are actually acknowledging Him. We are saying that what we see before us is not as real as what we know. What is real and true usually has very little to do with what we see with our physical eyes. Remember we talked about Joseph, and and we talked about the key to him walking in faith in the midst of trial and temptation is that he lived quorum Deo. He lived before the face of God. He lived in the reality of God's unseen presence, his invisible hand guiding him all the time. And prayer brings us before the face of God and reorients our lives to see what is really real. So from Jesus' prayer here, remember this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is reminding himself of what is really real. He begins with Abba, Father. And we do the same. We're reminded of the fatherhood of God. We're, we're emboldened to live as true children of God. We, we don't want to deny our Father. We don't want to act in a way contrary to who he is. And we reflect on our identity as, as children of God, as those who have been adopted through the sacrifice of Jesus. And we choose to live in, 
in that reality, the true reality of who we are, rather than living as slaves to sin and temptation. We're reminded of the fatherhood of God. We're reminded of the power of God. All things are possible for you. We know that God can deliver us from any evil. There's no temptation for which there is not an escape route. We're not overwhelmed by the trials that come into our lives, and we don't despair when our our flesh is drawn away and enticed. Rather, we, we choose to stand firm, to watch, to pray, to resist the devil, knowing that God is all-powerful and he will flee from us because all things are possible for God. We remember God's fatherhood, remember his power, and we also are reminded of what we actually really want in our lives, that we really truly want the will of God. We really do want to submit to God's will. We want his glory. We want what is truly good. So we're faced with self-centered desires. And, And through prayer, we're reminded that that's not really what we want. But what we really want is to, to submit our will to God's will. When we want to buckle under the pain and the heartache of trials that we're in, we recall that our greatest desire actually isn't for personal comfort but it's and, and a pain-free life, but rather it's, it's to be like Jesus. That's what I want. And if trials and self-denial bring holiness, then we can endure and we can even rejoice at what God is doing. How does prayer keep us from temptation? How does prayer keep us from entering into temptation? You see that it accesses the the power of God, but it also reminds us of what is really real. And this is where we live. We live in the walk of faith. We're reminded of who God is. We're reminded of, of who we are. We're reminded of what we truly desire. The fight that we're in is a fight of faith, and prayer bolsters that faith. It's this vital weapon that we have. Now, we hear these words, and we say, yes, I'm going to pray. <laughs> I'm going to set aside time, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray at all times in the Spirit. I'm going to pray without ceasing. And so Monday comes, and we've got the time set aside, and we kneel beside our bed, and 20 minutes later, our children wake us up, and we realize that we just fell asleep. <laughs> we didn't pray. We just zonked out. Now, don't despair in those moments. Remember, we've said this. There's something actually even just to the act of, of trying that I think is is right. But we want to grow. We want to grow. And I, I think the reason, though, that we see that, the reason that we so often trip and stumble when we're trying to pray is what Jesus says next. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Oh, man, don't we know it? <laughs> the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus here speaks of this conflict, I think, that we all know really well, even if we don't put it as elegantly as he does. It's the struggle between what we want to do and what we actually end up doing. That's Romans 7. We love that passage because we feel that passage. It's this broad principle that, that I, I, it's a big principle I think that we can think about, that, which is that there's a desire in us as children of God to do what is right, but there's also the desire in us to not do what is right. And I, I want to think about that broadly, but I also want to think about it specifically in regard to praying. I think in some ways Jesus is saying, Peter, you want to stand firm, but your flesh is weak. I think that's part of what Jesus is communicating. But I also think it applies to how we pray and that we desire to pray but we are weak in in prayer. So we want to pray, and we fall asleep. 
Um, or maybe we start out well and we're amazed how quickly our mind wanders to the point that we're suddenly not praying. We're like making a grocery list or something. And we've all been there. The most focused person among us becomes easily distracted when they begin to pray. And Jesus says uh, these words to the three, one of whom is Simon Peter. Think about the spirit indeed is willing. If anyone was willing, it's Peter. I mean, Peter was always willing. When Jesus said that they were all going to desert him, Peter's the first one to speak. In, in chapter 14, verse 29, he says that if everyone else deserts him, Peter says, I will not. And Luke tells us that he said to, to Jesus that he was willing to go to prison, and he was even willing to die for Christ. His spirit was willing, and yet he failed, and he fell. In part because of the same reason that we always fail, and the reason that we fail to pray. Because our spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. What does that mean, the flesh is weak? What, what's, what's, what's the point of that? Flesh is a word that's often used in Scripture, especially by Paul. Paul picks up on this idea, and it serves sort of as a shorthand for the sinful nature, for, for human nature apart from God's grace, which sets us against God's will. I think the best way to explain what flesh often means is in Galatians 5. Uh, if you want to turn Galatians 5:16 and following, I'll, I'll read a, a, a chunk of this and just give you a flavor for what Paul means when he uses this word flesh. Galatians 5:16 begins, "But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit." and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says the opposite, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, obviously here, flesh is shorthand for everything that is opposed to the spirit of God's work in our lives. The works of the flesh are the opposite of the fruit of the spirit. It's an easy way to think about it. But flesh can also just simply refer to the weakness of our humanity. Now that's tied to our sinful nature. We're kind of splitting hairs maybe a little bit, but there's simply a brokenness in us that's a result of the fall. There's a, a weakness in us that is part of being a created being. The disciples slept because that's what tired people do when they finally sit down. The Lord doesn't sleep or slumber, that's what the Psalms tell us, but, but we do. I remember going to the theater, I don't, all my illustrations aren't about the movie theater, I promise, um, to see the Gospel of John, a movie that um, was a word-for-word a depiction of John's Gospel, of the Good News Translation, and it, it's a great movie. 
And I remember in the midst of chapter 13 when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and then in 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, this large chunk of teaching that, you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to go to sleep. <laughs> I was tired. We were in a dark movie theater, and, and we'd already watched probably almost two hours of the movie at that point, and the teaching was there, and it was really great, but I wanted to fall asleep. And I have sympathy for these guys. They were sorrowful. It was late. It had been a long day. It's dark. Jesus tells them to sit here and to pray. And they fell asleep. In part because they're just human beings who were tired. The flesh is is tied to my sinfulness, but it's also just my human weakness. Jesus then is saying that however much the disciples wanted to pray, their sinful desires and their physical weaknesses are a hindrance to that. And that's true for us as well. It sort of feels like a like a catch-22 to me. Prayer is, is something that helps us to, to fight uh, the temptations of the flesh, but the flesh keeps me from, pain, from praying. So prayer is going to help me, but, but the flesh doesn't want me to pray. And it's like when you were a teenager and you, you wanted a car, but you needed a, a job to get the money to get a car, but you needed a car to get the job to get the money to get the car. It was like, how, how do I get out of this circle? Well, I, I don't want to, to do the desires of the flesh, and so I want to pray, but my flesh is telling me is fighting against this desire to pray. Well, don't forget what else he says. The Spirit is willing. The Spirit is willing. What's the Spirit here? Now, we read Galatians 5. That passage is obviously a reference to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. But here, I don't think that that's the primary reference to the Holy Spirit, but rather to the Spirit, to the immaterial part of us all. And there is a desire in the child of God to do what is right. If we have been redeemed by Jesus, we have a new heart, and we have new desires. That's not to say that the Spirit isn't active and involved with this new heart and new desires but simply that there's a renewed part of us that actually wants to fight against the flesh. There's a renewed part of us that wants to pursue holiness. There's a renewed part of us that wants to be like Jesus. There's a renewed part of us that wants to pray. It would seem then that as we obey the Spirit, as as we obey the desire to pray that the will the the willingness to or the, yeah this 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 will the spirit is is willing to pray wants to pray as we do that we step into prayer initially we do it by the work of God in our lives and that initial prompting is supernatural and then we, if we obey that impulse it's as if we are taken up into this place this that we break the cycle and the more we pray the more that our spirit is emboldened to continue to pray the physical weakness. Is, is overcome by the Spirit. It reminds me of Jesus. You remember he's, he's hungry before he meets the woman at the well, and then he speaks to the woman at the well, and the disciples come back, and they offer him food, and he says, I have food to eat that you don't even know about. And the, the disciples say, well, someone must have brought him food, I guess. But Jesus is saying that, that in some sense, the physical desire for food was replaced because he was, he was doing the will of the Father. We've all had some experience like that. That, that when we are in prayer, when we are walking with God, that all these fleshly desires, they fade away. That our spiritual appetites and passions overcome the weakness of our physical bodies. You know, 
I think sometimes we assume that spiritual appetites and spiritual passions will grow unlike other appetites and passions. There's something different about them. So if you're seeking to eat healthier, you're going to work hard to deny yourself certain foods in favor of foods that are better for you. And you don't like it at first. It's a struggle because you don't want to eat salad. You want to eat chocolate. But it's a, it's a good struggle. And slowly new habits and new tastes form in you. You don't just begin to eat healthier, but you actually like it. And you even start to, to crave healthier food. You start to exercise, and at first you hate it. You despise exercising. But then one day you wake up and you say, you know, I really can go for a run right now. I, I need to get to the gym. I want to do this. We form new habits, and these new habits form new loves and new desires within us. This guy James Smith in his book, You Are What You Love, has helped me to think about this in a deep way. He says that discipleship in many ways is a rehabituation of your loves. It's a reforming of who we naturally are to who we are in Christ. I was listening to Tim Keller, and he was talking about that love in Scripture is not primarily an emotion, but it's an action. And the actions of love, then when we, when we act in a way that is loving, the feelings follow with it. So love is not primarily an emotion, but it's an action. And the actions of love then lead to the, to the feelings of love. So here's what I'm saying. As, as followers of Jesus, we have this desire to pray. Our spirit is, is willing, but we are in the flesh. We are in the weakness of our, of our physical bodies, coupled with, with the passions of, of our flesh, and it makes prayer really difficult. But we can change what we, what we love by the power of the spirit. We can discipline our bodies, as Paul says, to the point that our desires and our feelings begin to follow our actions. The more we watch and pray, the more we desire to watch and pray, and that the struggle becomes less, and it becomes what we really want to do. Part of the reason that we as a church seek to pray together is, is, is that formation of new desires. We, we, we pray Sunday morning as part of our order of service. And it's not just so that those of us with kids, you know, like an extra challenge in the week to try to keep them quiet, you know. That's not the point. The point is to say that prayer is important. And that we would learn how to pray. We get together on, on Sunday nights and we try to devote a, a, a time to prayer. Why? So that we would learn to do it. So that we would do it more often. And suddenly, when we pray on Sunday nights, a lot of times I walk away and say, I'm going to pray more this week because it was so good to just to pray with others. It was encouraging. The, the church, in so many ways, acts as a, as a catalyst for prayer. When my spirit is not as real as willing, I put myself into a place where I am forced to do it, and suddenly the feelings start to follow what what I'm be, what I'm doing, and I and I love to pray. That was the whole goal of that the time on Wednesday night. Here's a place to come and pray, and you set the time apart to come and to be here and to pray, whether you really really want to or whether you really don't, and you commit an hour to it, and you come in, and that first 15 minutes is miserable, and you're falling asleep. And then you grow, and, and we start to pray more. And, and uh, you're surprised at all the things that there are to pray for and how your heart is, is caught up in this. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, but the more that we, that we do what we know God wants us to do, the more our emotions get caught up in that. So the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's not an excuse. 
that's not something that you say, well, spirit's willing, flesh is weak, though, so sorry. It's, not, it's meant to spur us on, that we see the weakness and we push through that by the power of a new heart, by the power of God's work in us. It reminds us why prayer is difficult, because of the flesh, but it also reminds us that there's a spirit that is willing to pray. As we thought about Jesus in this passage, I wonder, did, did he feel this weakness? When he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, did he feel that in some sense? No. I'm not saying that Jesus had a sinful nature. But but surely he understood the weakness of a physical body. He understood that, I think Jesus' eyes grew heavy. We see him sleeping in the boat. I think his knees hurt from kneeling in prayer for a long period of time. He was in a physical body. Luke says that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And yet he endures. As we think about our our prayerlessness and our weakness, the weakness of our flesh, we don't give up, we continue to fight. But we can also look to Jesus and remember that God doesn't require a perfect prayer life from you. Because Jesus has the perfect prayer life. Jesus watched and prayed his entire life. And in his final hours, he watched and he prayed up until the point of his death. And in watching and praying, he never entered into temptation. Isn't that amazing? Jesus fulfills that, what his command, watch and pray, so that you don't enter into temptation. And he did that perfectly. And despite his physical weakness, his spirit was always willing to pray, and he perfectly endured in prayer on our behalf in the midst of temptation. Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in what Jesus has done perfectly that we could not And our hope now is in Jesus' great patience towards us. I see that in the disciples. He doesn't cast off the disciples. He doesn't come and say, three strikes and you're out. I gave you three times and now you keep falling asleep and it's over. But he's patient. Comes to us with with mercy and, and kindness and grace in the midst of our weakness. He understands it. He doesn't excuse it, but he understands it. And he continues to call us to watch and to pray, to fight this good fight of faith, to not neglect the vital weapon of prayer. I love these two phrases, watch and pray that you enter not, that you not, that you may not enter into temptation. Prayer lays hold of the power of God. Prayer brings us back into what is really real. It helps us to see the truth of who we are, the truth of the power of God, the truth of what we really, truly desire. It helps us before temptation to see that, and it helps us in the midst of temptation to be reminded of that. Our flesh is weak. Both our sinful flesh pulls us from prayer, and our physical flesh makes prayer difficult. But there is a spirit that God has renewed in us that is willing, that desires to pray. You're a child of God. You feel that now. You say, I do want to pray. I desire to To pray. I long to pray. That is a a spirit-enabled, God-given desire. This desire to pray. And I would say, if that happens throughout this week, if you say, your spirit says, I want to pray, always listen to that. Every single time. If the spirit is willing to pray, make the time to pray. And let me remind you that it's, it's not your goodness. If, if you think that having a perfect prayer life is what's going to save you, it won't. Because none of us have that. 
But we see that Jesus fulfills all righteousness. He fulfills it in this sense, and then he pays the penalty for our prayerlessness and for all of the sin that we've ever committed by dying on the cross. He endures to the point of death to pay the penalty for our sins. And he calls us into not a life of works, but again, this walk of faith, to see who he is, to walk with him, to trust him, and to pray at all times.